Welcome to episode three of the Being an Event podcast. I'm Andrew, here with Alex. And today we feature an interview with Professor Sarah Porcio, where we talk about Cantor, Dedekind, the continuum, the ocean, and so many other things. But first, Alex and I offer our reading and interpretation of Elaine Badiou's Being an Event Part 3, focused on nature and infinity. Yeah, so we're so we're we're kind of going, you know, step by step, part three. And actually I think like by the end of today, parts one, two, and three, they really form this sort of sequence, which I would call kind of like the arithmetical or natural story for Bedju. And if we were to just like stop after part three, um, we would have a very different explanation, right? To the question of the mathematical story of ontology or something like that. And so, yeah, maybe we can kind of try to wrap a little bit at the end, like what these first three parts are all about. But before we get in, I just want to do sort of like a high level kind of reminder about some of the larger themes that I think are important, at least for me. And you can, you can chime in as well. Um, And the first one I mentioned before, which is a sort of a point about politics where I think it's important um, to describe bad you basically as a modernist and specifically as a political modernist, um, you know, acknowledging all of the critiques of political modernism, get into those as well, but I think that's a proper characteristic of Bedu. Um, that's the first point. Second point is about math, um, which- well, well, wait, wait, what do you mean? You can't just say that he's a modernist and then I'll explain what you mean by that because it means so many different things to so many different people. Just, you know, the break, a theory of the break, um, that, that the political, is understood as some sort of strong, stark break. So that could be a break with the past. That could be a break with like everyday life or uh, common sense. That could be um, a subjective break, which it is explicitly in bad you, right? Where if you say like, well, what's the political, you know, um, the bad answer would have to include at some level, like, um, you must change your life. You know, like the subject has to be qualitatively different at the end of it than than at the beginning of it. So, so it's not necessarily development, colonialism, industrial <laughs> revolution, um, <laughs> new forms of gender and sexuality, science. Did I already say science? I'll say science again, even if I didn't say it the first time. Uh, yeah, I mean, is it so, novelty? Uh, yeah, it's all of the above. I mean, I think, and and this is bad news. I think greatest sort of uh, liability and and vulnerability, which is that he is vulnerable. You know, he we talked about this in the first episode, right? That he's sort of trying to reinstantiate as this sort of like grand philosophical project, and you know, this with all of the perhaps I don't know, kind of nefarious Eurocentric. Um, teleological, you know, all, all of the things that go along with that. Um, I mean, I don't know if, if, if um, this isn't an attempt to, to, to excuse him, but I think, you know, you mentioned sort of like new notions of sexuality and I think, yeah, well, why don't we talk about those things too, right? Like, like Bolshevism as a new way of thinking about like the role of women, that's in fact really radical and really progressive. And so that may be a different way to think about political modernism that isn't 
something we want to immediately discard. And I guess we'll get to this in Meditation 11, where he's saying that, you know, there is something that was new or interesting about the Greeks, but there's also this older legacy of philosophy from China and India that did it even better than them, comes the poetic stuff. Also, he's not Christian. There's something like modern and new with, with Cantor. Okay, so I'm with you then. Yeah, and, and also we'll get to this in a second. As you said in Meditation 11, you know, it's not that he is endorsing um, the, the normal. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. He's endorsing the abnormal, right? And so, and so it's a form of political modernism, I think, that if, if you will, like, is headed in an appealing direction or whatever. Like, it's not, it's not this notion of political modernism where we have to, like, um, escape some form of deviation or, and, and then adhere to the law or, or to the, the word or to... Um, yeah, I mean, look, if we want to look at time, one could say that, you know, maybe linear time or these other things, but getting outside of cyclical time, which is, let's say, what some people will say is pre-modern time with a uh, transition figure being something like Vico or something, that, you know, now we get revolution. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, we need to bring that back, <laughs> right? Like, we're we're in this you know, we're in this sort of like, you know, what, what's the Mark Fisher line? Like this, there's this sort of like collapse of the future or whatever, like um, the slow cancellation of the future is at the line, you know, we're in this sort of, there is no alternative, like sort of numbing fog phase of history where, um, and so, you know, I think the, the return of history, the return of some notion of a strong historical break is appealing to me. So um, and that's one of the reasons why I really like that you. Yeah. So, okay. So that's kind of the first overarching point, which again, we'll, we'll, I think we're going to just touch back on this, like in probably every episode at some level. Second point is about math. And this one, I'm not sure I can actually explain today because it's maybe an unusual notion, but I want to propose this. And so this might be a, just a, a sort of like a, a tease or something, but the proposal is that Badu gives us not just a description of math or a kind of interpretation of math or whatever, but he actually gives us a definition of mathematics. And what I think the definition ultimately is for, for Bedju is, and it's an unusual thing because it seems to be sort of like slightly self-referential or recursive, but he says that mathematics is essentially defined as the difference between the real and the natural, the difference between the real and the natural. So, so, so some kind of like differential in the real and the natural, like the natural almost does like a subtraction from the real. This is what we could maybe nominate Badiou's principle. I think this is something that he basically introduces into the discourse. Okay, so file that away. I know that's just kind of a tease and I don't want to actually say more about it today because we have a lot more to get to, but. Well, maybe I can say yeah. something very briefly, which is we have real numbers, which is to say, I don't know, pi square root of two, something like that. But then we have a Lacanian reel, which he's willing to sort of play between these, which for him is something that is maybe not, maybe it's symbolizable, but it's not sayable. Yes. Or it's, it's still sort of, there's a level of inaccessibility to it. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think those are, those are all of the discourses that need to be kind of included and implicated in, in this definition that math is defined as the difference between the real and the natural. Exactly. So the hint, as you're, as you just point out, is to 
just simple number theory, right? Like we have the real numbers, we have the natural numbers, yet perhaps we can also do some sort of like analogy there to, yeah, like you said, some of these concepts in Lacan. Um, and that's what I want to do. Yeah. And maybe it's messy. Maybe they don't entirely map over, but I think they, there's some kind of connection. But I guess this means we're going to have to talk about nature. About what? Nature, the natural. Nature. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's, and that's one of the big topics um, for today. Okay. And then the third big macro thing, and maybe this, maybe this is kind of more my own hobby horse, but, but you have a lot of good ideas about this too, is a kind of running commentary about technology. Uh, namely, uh, running commentary about computers and the digital analog distinction questions, you know, this kind of ongoing lingering question that may not have a very clear answer, which is, is Bedgeu a digital philosopher? Yes or no? I think ultimately he is, but he's not a digital philosopher in a kind of um, mainline normal sense of like, you know, people who say that at the fundamental level, you know, things are discrete. Um, and so this will be fun, I think, for us, because we can sort of fill in a little bit uh, for Bedju's surprising kind of near total silence on <laughs> computation in the digital, which is sort of surprising, I think, for someone who has such a technical mind and is drawn to um, things that are either adjacent or feed directly into modern digital computation so maybe you know maybe we can kind of just supplement that story a little bit well yeah the biggest thing to happen to mathematicians in the last century is simple calculating machines turned into computers which are now a way to not only verify work for proofs that used to only exist let's say you know written in ink on a book and you had to sort of ask somebody and then it might come with different results or something but now we're at a stage where there's actually this casting forth and computers might actually have a navigational or exploratory role to find new numbers, theorems. I don't, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, so I don't know all the technical vocabulary here, but that the computers can actually drive mathematical inquiry, even in like pure math or really, really difficult stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it does not show up in bad use work. There are no computers here. And so it seems to be like a huge absence. Yeah. yeah, no computers were harmed in the creation of this this book, which is which is which is weird for someone who has such an advanced like kind of technological brain. And you know, when I was when I was looking at Wiener's archives a few years ago at MIT, you know, for years it's just like him doing doodles of Cantor and talking about Russell and like all these people that that Badiou is no doubt engaging that leads to cybernetics and computation as we know it. So like. He could have done this if he wanted, but but maybe he does want to get his hands dirty. Who knows? There's there's got to be a reason. Yeah, it, it may even just be. I mean, this is maybe a goofy answer, but you know, it, it may just be a kind of like um, theoretical practical split. You know, like there's the applied math people and there's the pure math people, and Bedu is 100% on the pure math people side, and uh, and I would say computer science is ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it's a practical science, meaning things have to run using electricity on an actual machine within finite time and finite resources. And, you know, I've probably said this before in a previous episode, but like, if you ask a computer scientist about infinity, they'll kind of like give you the side eye, you know, like it's just infinity is not 
a thing within a computer. You don't even have real numbers in computers. You have, you have, you don't have an infinite hard drive. Your processor can't hold an infinite number. Right. No, no, no. You know, I mean, you have, you have, you have, you have pretty good approximations like, you know, with floating point numbers, but to a pure, to pure mathematics, a floating point number is as far away from the real number it's supposed to represent as like an integer is, you know, so Techne does come up once in our reading today in Meditation 11 in the original Greek. Oh, yeah. And the way that he describes it right before it is he says, art, work of art, techne. So, I mean, I think that reveals a lot. Right. That's where he's sort of sparring with um, Heidegger that we'll get to in one, in one second. Okay. So, okay. But you said, okay, so you pushed back a little bit on the political modernist thing, which I think is valid. And I just want to, before we get deep into the episode, um, just kind of reinforce that, that there are a lot of people who want to reject you precisely on some of these macro level themes that we've been talking about. And one of my favorite ones, uh, examples of this is from Catherine Malibu um, in, a, in an often comment, but I think an important one, um, her critique of Badiou. And, and I, I should look this up, but I can't really remember off the top of my head any point where Badiou's done a, sorry, where Malibu's done a uh, extended read on, on Badiou. I, I could be wrong. Maybe there's something there that I've missed, but um, she might have something like that forthcoming in the future. I don't know. But there is an off- offhand comment in this, in this interview I found where she's sort of, her critique of Badiou is that he basically rejects um, things that she likes, things like biology and maybe a more kind of physical or material realm in favor of math. And so this is the quote, the philosophical use of mathematics today is very strange and deserves to be deconstructed. Badiou, of course, is the great guru of this mathematization of the real. We know what is hidden behind this totalitarian thinking. And of course, Badiou hates biology. Ooh. Yeah. And I mean, she's cutting right to the heart, right? Because if you say Badiou hates biology, I mean, that, you know, you know, it's in parentheses there. She's basically Feminism. saying Badiou, Badiou, yeah. Badiou hates women. Exactly. Yeah. So. This is this is very difficult. And that totalitarian theme, too, also comes up in other people who are critical of Badiou, including Francois Laruelle, right? His anti-Badiou, he basically makes the claim that Badiou is doing a kind of like, um, you know, a kind of like um, re-education plan, right? That you have to like train and discipline thinking along these sort of like gulag type uh, <laughs> You know, making these kind of analogies to like a kind of, um, I don't know, cultural revolution or some sort of like um, totalitarian, quasi-totalitarian, like sort of imposition on the subject. And so, yeah, there are other people who are kind of pushing back on on Badju's sort of political posture. But maybe I'll, I'll push back on Malibu just a little bit here and say, OK, maybe totalitarian. We'll have to figure out what that means. But we're going to find out with with nature. actually. By the time we're done with it today, maybe there's not even nature. What's been called nature with the big N is not a totality or a whole. And maybe it's just an illusion anyway. And by the time we get to Hegel, oh man, he, he tears into Hegel from three or four different angles. Yeah. And there is, there is no totality by the time we're done with that. Right, right. But it's wild because I, you probably would agree that the method that Badji uses in that meditation is um, ironically, or maybe he planned this is, is super Hegelian, right? He's, he's like, 
like the 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 successor imminent critique yeah totally right so the successor ordinal versus the limit ordinal i mean you can see the kind of workings of the dialectic where he's sort of oscillating perspective wise like if you consider an ordinal from its kind of role as a successor it, it come you come to this conclusion but if you consider the ordinal in its role as a limit then you kind of come to this other conclusion and so that's that's a kind of beautiful kind of meta methodological move that he's doing in those sections and there's i'd imagine there, there's a lot of difference and indifference that shows up in that too mm. and there's a sort of ambiguity to where Badiou ends on this and if people actually mistake Badiou for agreeing with hegel right in this chapter i think they can right. come to some very um specious conclusions he doesn't do a terribly good job yeah yeah which you could easily do yeah i think the first time i read this i probably was thinking that Badiou is a lot more of an ally with 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 hegel in that section um and and in fact this is we we talked in the past about how spinoza and deleuze are that's one constituency that Badiou really wants to keep at bay and we see also in this section which we'll get to next um heidegger is also and phenomenology, the version of phenomenology that is, you know, so intent on focusing on presence and authenticity. And he also needs to keep that at bay. Um, and maybe here we also see that there is a kind of like version of Hegel and dialectics that even if if, if Bedieu is kind of sympathetic to some of those mechanisms, he also needs to kind of keep that at bay as well. Let's jump into it. Um, Meditation 11, poem or Matthew, I mean, as an operator, or you get a choice. I mean, here's that, here's your binary, you know, if you need one. So, so maybe we can, um, yeah, rehearse it a little bit. Philosophy of the conjunction, you know, Deleuze is an and guy, Bedu's an or guy. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the biggest ors we get, you know, cause remember at the beginning of the book, he says, Heidegger's the last big philosopher, or at least if we're to all agree on the last big philosopher, it's Heidegger. And now he's just like, but I am not that. So here comes your break. <laughs> okay. So what's his, what's his, what's his, like, what's the dagger? What, what's the like shiv in the ribs of Heidegger here? Yeah. So, okay. So first begins with rehearsal. He just wants us to understand what he takes to be Heidegger, who is poem. And so Heidegger says that the moderns have forgotten nature, big M, as in the Greek um, physis, because we've made physics or mistaken physics, uh, physics for physics in and through Galileo. So, you know, this uh, quantifiable, measurable, verifiable, you know, today we might say that the figure of positivism sort of stands in for this as well, but he wants to take it you know, Badiou's putting it a little bit farther back in the history of ideas. Because we've forgotten that, that's the thing that Heidegger needs to return to. But maybe I, sh I should get to that at the end. So then Badiou, by contrast, says that the Greeks gave us something, but it wasn't this poetic ontology. We don't need this Heideggerian project of going back to the Greeks to see what they originally meant, it being perverted by the Romans and the Christians and ontotheology between it. And Badiou makes this claim that I like, but I think some others might dislike to say that there are people who've done the poetic philosophy better, and they are the Chinese, the Indian, and other philosophers. So what do the Greeks give us? The Greeks interrupted that poetic ontology, which is sort of philosophy from so many places, and it gives us mathematical reason through deduction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he says the Greeks did not invent the poem, rather they interrupted 
the poem with the Mathium. And this is part, I think, of his, you know, I think we're, we, we, we're, we, there's so many examples of people who want to sort of like undo Plato, right? Like Plato's the problem. We need to undo him. And so for, for Heidegger, even that's true for Heidegger, right? He's like, Plato is the problem, right? Like it's the pre-Socratics. That's what's interesting. And Deleuze does a similar kind of move, but maybe for different reasons. And so I think the, the kind of audaciousness of Badiou is that he knows that everyone is going to freak out when he does this, but he wants to um, militantly kind of reassert the radicalness of the platonic intervention. Yeah. And, and that in that he like fights the Greeks on both sides, both the pre-Socratics, you know, who probably be way too mystical for him and poetic. And then uh, Aristotle, who's probably too much yet in the realm of physics and engineering and the substance of the real world. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like a technocrat for, for so then, for okay. We get this image then. And he says, there's no loss that needs to be recovered. We don't need to like figure out Aletheia or the real, the truth that the Greeks knew that we've forgotten, which he says, <laughs> I this know. is such a fun line where he says like, <laughs> that's just a nostalgia that Heidegger <laughs> and the Germans are so known for. So he's just like swiping at all the Germans for that one. And he says, instead, He's cool with maybe a version of physics, but that's not physics at all. It's just pure math. And eventually we'll get a symbolization for it later. That's just like way out there. Very, very axiomatic. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So he says nature is normal. And then he gives it, there's a series of these, of these totally wild ways of characterizing nature. He says nature is normal. Nature is consistency. He says nature is the remaining there of the stable <laughs> or that's an internal quotation i forget from who maybe that sounds very very heidegger i don't know um and then he says nature is a stability of stabilities so this is his indictment of nature and he wants to eventually i don't know if i wouldn't go so far maybe like anti-nature but we know that we know that this kind of state of of like ordinal nature needs to be surpassed and it gets surpassed very quickly in the book. I mean, in the next two meditations, which maybe we should just, you know, move to, nature is just totally demolished by the end. Like there might be this physicist thing, but he says nature is an illusion. Right. It's, it's this human thing that we've come up with to have this assumed totality. And that, cr that makes it finite. He doesn't want any of that fi finiteness. He doesn't want to be this like thing that we return to nature. You know, we're like, oh, what do we know? We're talking about these abstract things. Give me a concrete case because that's how I know where the rubber hits the ground. And he's like, no, no, the rubber doesn't hit the road there. It's, you know, nature is just this terrible illusion that we've come up with in order to, um, you know, stop inquiry, stop thought. Yeah, right. And, and again, you know, he gives this, he gives this through a technical definition, right? Like he... We hinted at this last time about the, the things that are presented, things that are represented. And he defines the normal as both presented and represented. So there's a kind of almost like um, consistency or entrainment uh, between both of those moments, the presented and the represented. And so this is why for Badiou, nature is homogeneity, right? He says, Nature is self-homogenous, self-presentation. It's homogenous normality. 
And I think that's a huge, huge part of how he's setting up the argument that will come later. And I already read the, the Catherine Malibu, the Catherine Malibu line at the top. Right. And so we, we can see now, I think maybe why this posture would be so irritating to her. Um, we could compare to Malibu. We could also make a comparison with, with Deleuze who would, I think say, hopefully you would agree exactly the opposite, right? Nature is heterogeneity. Yeah. Nature is deterritorialization. Yeah. University of difference. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a stability of stabilities. It's an instability of instabilities or something. Right? Far from equilibrium, chaos, the chaosmosis. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. The, the order that grumbles beneath or whatever. Yeah. And so, and so that's odd, you know, you could pick up this book and be like, why is, why is Betty doing this? But um, it's really a step in the argument that then will be consummated um, a little bit later because um, you know, he has to have the thing that gets broken from, right? So if nature is normal, then the break with nature will be the abnormal. And that's the, that's the direction that Badju is on, right? Like that's the vector is pointing in toward the abnormal. The event is the abnormal, the thing that is impossible within the situation. Yeah, because it's not easy to telegraph this. He hasn't told us where he's going yet. So when I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, here's the technical, you know, stuff that we're working through right now. I know that he's neither a poetic, pre-Socratic, swirling mist of the void, even though he likes the void, nor is he the Aristotelian, like practical reason guy here who's trying to, you know, talk about what works. Um, so maybe this is time for meditation 12 where we get, I mean, I think the title of this one's very straightforward. We do get a version of nature now, no longer a totality or a whole. We get an ontological schema of natural multiples. That's where nature suddenly shows up and the non-existence of nature. So nature isn't just like a single, single overarching term for anything. Yeah. So maybe I could just say like two sentences about this concept of the ordinal. Um, so, you know, and I'm not a mathematician, but, you know, there are they're, they're sort of like these two important concepts that, that are used to describe number. And one is the cardinal quality of number or cardinality, and the other is the ordinal quality of number or, or the ordinal or, 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 or ordinality. And so we haven't really gotten to the cardinal yet, but um, the ordinal is really important in this section. And so what is the ordinal? Well, it's, it's the quality of number um, that refers to um, just the order of numbers or the seriality of numbers. And um, so we would think of it maybe just in terms of like the counting numbers, like it's sort of cognitively and, and conceptually, we think of three as a magnitude um, before in sequence, in order before the magnitude four, right? So that may seem like completely obvious and, 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 and why would we ever not think that? Let's, let's slow this down for a second. Yeah. It's, uh, if we think of baseball, everyone has a number on their back and then they're also put in a batting order. Yeah. Yeah. And those are different. Exactly. Their batting order is the, is the ordinality exactly. and the number on their back is the cardinality. Yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. Like you could look at a basketball player, like, like is, is, you know, is Michael Jordan, the 23rd, third in line or something? No, like that, that number is the name. That's a proper name. Um, and so when we look at it, we're looking at the cardinality of that number. We're not looking at the ordinality of that number. 
another example would be like like if if we said like what's the cardinality of a carton of eggs we could say it's it's a dozen right but if we said what's the ordinality of a carton of eggs there isn't really an answer to that if there's not one egg that's the first one before the other one and so i think that's a good example because it shows that number can have the quality of cardinal and it can also have optionally the quality of the ordinal and it doesn't necessarily have to have both and we can think about numbers that or or symbols maybe that do one and do the other and there's this great moment in lacan um where he talks about how um the alphabet has um cardinality but it doesn't have it doesn't have ordinality or it doesn't have a strong sense of ordinality so you know we 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 could intuitively say like yeah d is after c right okay we have we learned our abc's like after quote unquote but it's not after c in a strong ordinal sense meaning like when you compose um words out of letters it's not like the fourthness of d that makes sense in its like composition and phonemes and syllables and words and things like that whereas the the very meaning of four you would have to understand in an ordinal sense in order to use that integer if you wanted to compose like the number 14 or or some other some other number yeah to to a computer they have no ordinality except maybe that it corresponds to no, no, it, w- it won't have any ordinality at all, other than maybe the size it takes up. Yeah. Um, but then from the perspective of a human, occasionally it comes in, but usually not. You know, it does. It does. And it comes in in, in different languages. Like XYZ, ABC. Yeah. You can you can make jokes or things where the the sequence actually kind of matters of how we're sort of taught it. But yeah. Yes, that is true. And then also, of course, there are languages where um, al- the alphabet are, is used as explicitly as counting numbers. So like Greek and Hebrew are both two examples of that. Like we say alpha beta, you know, to mean first, second or omega to mean last. And so the, the notion of kind of ordinality, I think is, is strong, more strongly typed in certain languages. But I think in, in English, it's not entirely vacant, but I think Lacan does have a good point, which is that, um, you know, our normal kind of Roman, <clears throat> um, alphabet is has a strong sense of cardinality, but a very weak sense of, of ordinality. And um, anyway, we don't want to get, I think maybe too, too lost here, but, but another way I think to think about the ordinal as it figures in meditation 12 is I think, I think a mathematician would, would agree with this uh, example, but I like the metaphor of sort of like Russian dolls, right? Like nested dolls um, as a way to understand this idea of the ordinal chain. Um, because w- one thing that Beji stresses in this meditation, and he's getting this from kind of pretty well adopted and well-known definitions of, of ordinal number in mathematics, which is that you, you define um, a successor number basically in terms of the number that came before it. Um, it's kind of like what, you know, like um, we were talking, I guess, before we started recording about this notion of like, of, you know, Veggie begins with the void and then he does a, like an operation on the void and that basically sort of like um, engulfs the thing inside of it and then you can do an operation on that and it engulfs that and you do an operation on that and so there's this sort of chain that gets formed where every successive ordinal number literally technically contains the previous number inside it and that's how you get this like very strongly linked um series or order it's not a it's not like um you know just 
the 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 you know the word of god that tells you that one number comes after the other number or something it's it's no it's like a kind of a technical it's a part of how numbers are kind of technically constructed and so i like this metaphor of the of, of nested russian dolls right like each nested doll belongs he, he, the, the, i'll just read the quote he says an ordinal is the number of that which it is the name an ordinal can therefore be visualized as a chain of belonging and he wants to say that this is a place where you have this, he says, a maximum correlation between belonging and inclusion. Everything which belongs is included. So the Russian dolls, again, like everything that's supposed to be inside one doll is in it, right? Nothing else is in it. And the doll that's supposed to be inside isn't somewhere else, right? Like sitting on the shelf or something. So everything supposed to be inside the nested doll is there and nothing else is there. And then if you open that, there's this sort of iterative process where the same thing happens inside that doll. The only thing that's supposed to be inside the smaller one is present in it and nothing else is present is, is, is present there. Yeah. Okay. So you've gone up with the successor. We've sort of started with a number that, that can get counted. Also to mention the void in here, he's interested in how this can happen. Maybe in the, you know, you can't have a, you can't, it's like a null set, right? So you, it doesn't matter what the number is. So it doesn't like, like to use my uh, baseball metaphor, it's the batting order where it doesn't even matter who the player is right now. He's just talking about the fact that there needs to be this order and all the things about it. Um, we can also go down in this meditation. He's interested in this atomistic description mm. where he says that the proper, we can define some of the elements, at least according to their properties, uh, I think it's theta. And he's interested in how you can have a minimal uh, belonging, so the smallest possible element that still belongs, mm. and it, and that leads to a halting point. Yeah, where you stop the counting, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What do you make of that? Because I wrote my wrote in the margin there, basically like atomism exclamation point, and he's sort of talking about that um, an atom for every natural property. And so I might first thought was like, oh, shit, this is this is like the smoking gun. You know, Badju is an atomist. He's a he's a digital thinker. There's there is a terminal unit at the bottom. And I think it's not exactly the right characterization, though. I still think he's a digital philosopher, but kind of for other reasons. So what did you make of that, that that sort of terminal atomic basis or or or, or at least a basis? I'm just holding it without judgment right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know how to cash it out. I'm I'm just holding it without judgment right now that Badiou thinks that Adam is some element of Adam is necessary for his account. Obviously, he'd, he'd get rid of it if he didn't need to because he's like trying to work with a certain level of elegance here. Yeah. Um. Maybe it could also be related to the other piece, which comes a little earlier in the chapter too, where he's trying to give us this image of well, how how are all these things related, right? So we might have a term that can be sort of added in succession. I'm not added, um, grown in succession. And he's saying, well, there is nature, but nature does not exist. And there's no whole, there's no totality. They're just parts, which sounds like a certain atomism as well. You know, there's an atomism that says that um, the relationship between two things is an independent third thing. So there are these, these questions like holes and parts, and it seems like he's working with all parts and no holes. But then 
it's not just this void of atoms in which they're just sort of floating independently of each other. He makes this claim that all natural multiples are related through integration or in intrication without forming a whole. So they're all interrelated or not actually related, they're in intricated, but it doesn't add up to a whole. There's no totality that comes from it, nor is there like even a common term. He loves that. He loves the like the denying the one, the denying the whole, yet, yet holding on to the multiple. So, so this is giving us an interesting relationship to this universality that we're going to grow to later as well. Like we do have this image of all of the things, but the all doesn't equal one. So yet there is a potential synonym for the one which he does want to grapple with, which is infinity, the infinite. Yeah. Meditation 13. Boom. I like this argument. I think it's super clever. Yeah, this section, I mean, I even just on a personal note, I mean, so this is kind of a sidebar, but I, I've told you this story before, but when, you know, when I first read Being an Event, I basically hated this section, turned up my nose, glossed through it, skipped it, was offended by it, was like, I don't want to read this. Because for me, infinity meant idealism. It meant, you know, the Hegel section meant idealism. And at, and at that age, I was still, I probably still am under this kind of heavy sway of like the Althusserian epistemological break, right? Still committed to removing speculative idealism as much as possible, right? Like always side with Marx, never side with Hegel, et cetera. And it was really only years later, ironically, after a kind of like Delizian epiphany <laughs> um, that I began to see the importance of the infinite and it's not like as a proxy for the transcendental or the absolute or God or whatever, but as, as a, as really the experience of real continuity, you know, I mean, I think that's how Delizian would put it. You know, this also connects to my interest in the analog. Right. And so the, I mean, the, the, the too long didn't read version is infinity doesn't really work within the digital, if you ask me, but it's 100% at home in the analog. And so if you want to take the analog seriously, you have to take infinity seriously. And that may not make much sense, particularly now in Badiou, because he's starting from arithmetic. He's starting from counting numbers, like whole discrete numbers. And that may actually betray a, a arithmetical bias in Badiou, which I think is, is true. But he, he is... He's he's canter pilled, you know. I mean, he he has to get to the two sizes of infinity, and he wants to get to them, both of them. He's avoiding the cosmological one, right? That's that's how he calls it, but providing, you know, infinite natural multiplicity is what he calls it. Um, and so, I mean, you hinted at this earlier, right? Like he wants infinity, but without God, um, without a kind of mystical version of it. I, th I think that's, that's the clever part of this, this meditation for me. Yeah. Cause like you, you know, I was raised on anti-Oedipus. So like God is how you hide power, right? This sort of transcendent otherworldly thing isn't just like an error of thought. It's a power operation in which people conceal their own operations of power. Right. And that's, that's in so many ways, one of the big sort of, Nietzschean targets in anti-Oedipus, like the psyche as this unsought, uh, this unthought, or as um, 
you know, ap- appeals to transcendence as it as it inspires politics, as it actually is this despotic impulse, which DNG find a little bit in Derrida and Lacan and the name of the father. Okay. Anyway, I don't need to rehearse the DNG side of this. But so like you, I'm always a little suspicious of the infinity stuff, especially kind of the Delizians who use it to cheat. So I was like, okay, what's he going to do here? But he does something else. He says like, the ancients didn't believe in the infinite. I, I lived in Missouri for a while, you know, the great Missouri state motto, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, there's like a, for him, I think that he takes the ancients as saying like, there's not, no, there's not a, never trust a number farther than you can throw it, you know, <laughs> like just very like finiteness to things. And he said the Christians weren't any better. They, they layered or stacked this transcendent God on top of it, but it was a transcendent otherworldliness, like in the sort of like Kantian critique of it, where it's just like an excuse to say that there's this outside but they fail to actually have an adequate concept for thinking it. So in fact, the, the Christians didn't even really have an infinite at all. <laughs> it was like a fake infinite. So I thought that was kind of, I mean, that, that's like a great argument. Yeah. It's like, it takes Cantor to actually think the infinite, which is a bit ironic given that Cantor himself said he was inspired by God to think the infinite, right? Well, yeah. And then he like went crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. And so this, I think this is Badju's point, which is that he, I think what he would say is that if you have a concept of the infinite that you only get by basically um, denying, let's call it like the rationalist posture or whatever. Yeah. So like an appeal to some ineffable beyond or repeal uh, an appeal to like pure belief at a theological level. I think Bedu would say like, you haven't done it. You haven't gotten to the infinite, but if you get it strictly through this technical language that we inherit from Cantor, then you did it. You did it technically, you did it rationally, you did it within mathematics. So it still has all of the explosion. It still has all of the glory and all of the power, right, of, of the infinite. But you didn't get it through like, you know, Heidegger on his path and like meditating on like the forgetting of some pure presence or something like that, right, which is a kind of secular religion. So maybe this sort of um, false concept of infinity is transcendent version of infinity, he says that put thought onto an imaginary impasse that just, it was incapable of doing this. Thought. So it takes Cantor to break through it. And so the version of infinity that he wants says is without breaks, it's without nature. It's without, without meditation of the one. Okay. I think we're sort of coming to an understanding and then maybe I'm skipping ahead here, but this is very much his like attack on the philosophies of finiteness of which Heidegger, but then all these sort of phenomenologists and others sort of stand in for. And I'm just going to read it, page 149, right at the end. It says, human is that being which prefers to represent with infinitude, whose sign is death, rather than knowing itself to be entirely traversed and encircled by the omnipresence of infinity. Mm. Oh, yeah. At the very least, one consolation remains, that of discovering that nothing actually obliges humanity to acquire this knowledge. Because mm. at this point, the sole remit for thought is the school of decision. Yeah, and that's definitely a dig at Heidegger, you know, being unto death, the importance of finitude in, in being in time. And then, yeah, I, I interpreted the second half of what you just read almost as a kind of, would you agree, almost as a kind of existentialism? Mm. 
right? The school of decision, the, the, the decision academy or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it it's not like, um, it's almost like the human is, is sort of placed in accessible proximity to the infinite and given all of the tools yet necessarily must act in this kind of quasi existentialist way. Um, must sort of enact the decision or, or, or the decision is enacted through the person or something like that. We'll, we'll probably have to wait until we really get into the decision. Cause when I hear a decision, I always think Schmitz and like, yeah, hyper, hyper conservative, anti-revolutionary um, uh, politics, but maybe I, I like the Sartrean, yeah. you know, decision here. So well, I mean, I, I agree. I think you're, you're, you're right that there is this, important tradition of basically saying decision is fundamentally conservative or, or maybe if that's putting it too strongly, um, decision is synonymous with a traditional conception of philosophy, right? So this is basically what I learned from, um, you know, basically what I learned from, from reading Laruel, right? Which is that, um, you know, in, in meditation 14, Beju comes down very clearly and he basically says, like, I'm not doing a deductive science. I'm not doing an inductive science, right? I'm doing a science of decision. So, like in a in another book that he he writes sort of in the wake of um of of uh of this book in a book called Number and Numbers, he puts this very clearly. He says it's not deduction, it's decision. And this is the quote: um, the infinite will not be deduced. We have to decide its existence axiomatically, which comes down to admitting that one takes this existence not for a construction of thought, but for a fact of being, which is totally wild. So he's, let's just, let's take that a little more slowly. So he's saying it's not something you deduce or construct. And those are both direct references to like methods that people use in logic and math. So he's saying like there are the certain version of doing that. Instead, it has to be about decision and axiom. And then the result is a fact of being, which is like very Heideggerian or something, right? Capital B. Um, and it's, it seems like it might um, connect with someone like Deleuze or Spinoza, right? Because for Deleuze, of course, um, continuity is real. You know, the real is real. And so maybe a kind of fact of being, even though Deleuze would never use language like that. Um, but Bedu is nevertheless always and ever that classical metaphysician, I think, on this point. And that's where the decision being is always split. It's never continuous. Um, anyway, so for me, this is kind of like the proof that, that Bedu is a digital philosopher. It's not because he's an atomist or not even just that he has an affection for math that explains that. You, I mean, Deleuze had his own you know, affection for certain kinds of math, um, but it's because he's committed to this decisive decision-based logic, um, which I would connect with distinction, discretization, the cut, um, a kind of strong notion of, of discrete, stark, symbolic difference. Um, and I think this is something that I never really metabolized, I think, fully until after reading Laruel. And he, I don't know if Laruel would say explicitly, like, that's a conservative posture, but, but that's the, I think that's the assumption, right? That like, that is the traditional posture of Western metaphysics and Badu is 100% doing it. Absolutely. So 
the decision also being related to all these mathematical operations that we formalize through computation, like um, executing a command. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's an active event. You know, that that something is, yeah, it's it's active. Whereas, whereas like for Deleuze, there's a passive synthesis of a lot of things that happen within his sort of metaphysical schema. Yeah. And yeah. here for Badiou, the most important thing is an active decision. Yeah. 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 So I think like the most generous read is that this is a kind of existentialism, you know, um, we, we could probably pick meaner, meaner things to call this, right? Like, I don't know, voluntarism or totalitarianism. Is that, it's, that's what Malibu was saying, right? Yeah. Totalitarianism. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even, or even some, you know, like what's the, what's the, what's the flip side of existentialism. That's more, that's like less, um, you know, less kind of generous read on existentialism is like, oh, you know, like the great man theory who's like an individual who can like, you know, head out into the world and make like active, you know, uh, you know, exert their will and then have it be actively um, like uh, realized in the world or something. So like uh, various forms of voluntarism that, that, that are gross and masculine. I mean, it, it's funny you say arithmetic too. Because in the next meditation, there's this funny sort of, it ends, like, I guess I just read another ending. And this one, he's, he's kind of taking a swipe at arithmetic a bit. Maybe I should read some of this too, because it was like one of these moments. It's like, wow, he's really going for it. it says, arithmetic, queen of Greek thought for Eudoxus's geometrizing revolution is in truth the science of the first limit ordinal alone, which he designates as uh, Omicron or uh, Omega Omicron. It is ignorant of the latter's function as other. So even with this mathematization and this formalization, he wants to maintain the otherness of a lot of these, these uh, key terms here, especially within the uh, limit ordinal. I um, mean, mentions finiteness, but then he has this like pro con. He says the strength of arithmetic lies in its calculatory dominion, which is obtained by the foreclosure of the limit and the pure exercise of the interconnection, same others. So he's giving arithmetic some due. So, so a certain version of uh, calculation he's, he's saying is, is necessary and useful. Then he says its weakness lies in its ignorance of the presentative essence of the multiplicities with which it calculates. In essence, revealed only in deciding that there's only the series of others within the sight of the big other, and that every repetition supposes the point at which, interrupting itself in an abyss, it summons beyond the name of the one multiple that it is. Infinity is that name. So he's ultimately saying, even if we can arithmetize certain operations and try and get to the multiple that it calculates, sure, it's calculable, but we're still left with. An inability to understand the abyss, the one multiple, the other, all these things. He says we can we can do all these operations on it, but you know, it sounds very like Heidegger at a certain moment, right? Yeah, I I see. It still seems like the ineffable. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I I think this is a a fundamental sort of it's not a problem, but there's this fundamental kind of counterintuitive inconsistency in Bedu, which is that he's very militantly against pushing back against, let's just call it a kind of romantic or in this section, the poetic ontology, right? Nevertheless, there's all this talk about abysses and impasses and, you know, radical breaks. And, and so it does seem that there is a kind of 
romantic posture that reemerges. And yeah, I think what you, just to respond to what you just said, which I think is crucial, which is something to be acknowledged. Bedu starts with arithmetic, right? That's really important. I think set theory also starts with an arithmetical mode. and, And I would say a lot of mathematicians and logicians and other people also are basically biased in favor of the arithmetic. Um, but you're absolutely right that part of the narrative of this book is to get beyond it, right? Nature is normal. Uh, he wants to get beyond this kind of limited, um, sense of number. And so I think like the, the overall trajectory is that until now he's basically been kind of clearing the field. He's been sparring with opponents. He's been setting up some kind of technical prerequisites. But it's really only in meditation 13, 13 and 14, where we basically, for the first time, we see Bad Yu taking a large kind of active step towards his ultimate goal in the book, which is to basically use Cantor's sizes of infinity as a basis for this political modernism, for this theory of radical break. And the event, the event. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think maybe we're still here in being, right? So we're getting this thorough, thorough account of being. Okay. We're, we're exactly. Yeah. We're still here in being. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so that's, I think where this is ultimately headed. So in meditation 13 on infinity, we're still just within nature, quote unquote. Um, we're still just within the arithmetical, the arithmetical infinite, or we could call that the natural infinite. This is like the smaller size of, of the infinite in, in, in Cantor. But soon we'll get to the two sizes. Um, and this is demonstrated in Cantor's famous diagonalization proof. And it's really in the two sizes where the abyss opens up, right? And that's that gets formalized in this kind of famous continuum hypothesis that articulates the gap between the two sizes. Um, and that abyss, which is the gap between the two, is the mathematically real basis for what you just said, events. So maybe the transition to this, like right at the beginning of Meditation 14, he wants it just absolutely clear, like this is the thing for people to like highlight, write down, and cite if they ever want to be like, um, Badiou is not talking about some natural that's concrete, that's whole, that's total. That second paragraph, he says, nature has no being. It falls foul of the prohibition of self-belonging. So he's saying that he's using the set theoretical argument for it. Along with Kant, a cosmological conception of the whole or totality is inadmissible. Yeah. If infinity exists, which Badu wants it to, it must be under the category of one or of several natural beings, not under that of the, quote, grand totality. Yeah. And that, I mean, he'll take on Hegel to really sort of put the point home in the next meditation. That's it. So he's looking at multiple natural beings as the basis for this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and maybe before, maybe even like more fundamentally than multiple, it's really two, right? Like he says on 150, there are two fundamentally different species of natural multiple being which is just totally wild. Um, And this is like a first hint, I think, of what is to come in what I consider the two most important meditations, meditation 26 and 27, particularly page 278, which we'll get to in a few episodes, um, which is just like, that's, that's the, those are the pages where the book kind of 
breaks in half and explodes. Um, and it's based on this, I, I, which I would, I would call basically like the rule of two, which is to say that like, you can't, um, you can't answer a question by reverting to some sense of totality or whole or continuity. You have to answer the question by reverting to a decision or a cut or a distinction. And it's clear that Badiou, in a very strong sense, um, wants to assert, as he puts it, two fundamentally different species. So maybe we should talk about successor just a little bit, because I think that's maybe one of the operations that helps us understand affinity here. So it's not just that you can count. Yeah. But then after Cantor and all these other people, there's this question like the dot, dot, dot. So you count one, two, three, four, and then you keep going until you've counted everything, which is say infinity. And so then Cantor's big question with the two sizes is, okay, you can count one, two, blah, blah, blah. But what if you count um, that twice? <laughs> is it bigger? Like, can you have a set of that count operation happening twice? Or what if you start rather uh, not with one, but if you start with two or something? I'm, I'm not mathematician, so I don't know all what the regular ones. Yeah, it, it's, I've, yeah, I think, I think technically they've, there's, you can demonstrate that like the, the set of all the odd numbers is actually has the same cardinality as just the set of all the counting numbers. And I think you can also demonstrate that if you were to square every number, um, you know, like, or if you were to multiply by two or whatever, so like, like simple arithmetical operations and which is why we stressed, I think in the previous episode, the one before the power set, because for, you know, for Badiou following Cantor, the power set is not one of those simple kind of modifications of the natural set or the rational set, but it actually is. Uh, qualitatively of a different magnitude of cardinality from the simple rational or natural numbers. And, and, and so, yeah, that's the distinction that he's trying to get to. So he, he introduces this concept of the limit ordinal. I think the place where he outlines it the clearest for me is when he's distinguishing two different forms of ordinality in 155. So there's the successor ordinal and the limit ordinal. And so the first, the successor, I think it's just that sort of counting and the inclusion of, of the inclusion of the name and it keeps sort of growing. And then there is something that exists beyond the quote finished sequence. So my sort of dumb non-mathematical brain says like, okay, we can do the dot, 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 but it's like the dot, dot, dot itself even has a different status than the one, two, three, four that we put beyond it. Yes. So exactly. I think that's actually a good way to describe it. Yeah. So the limit ordinal is like the dot, 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 like the fact that there's still something that's going on, but that it's beyond yeah. the notation and it's sort of yeah. beyond our initial conception of it. Yeah. I think this distinction between the successor and the limit, you're exactly right, that this is sort of the, the, the initial intuitive, almost baby step for him introducing what will become a strong distinction of, of magnitude or distinction of cardinality. In other words, like if you can just kind of provisionally locally understand like here's a successor and then there's a limit, right? And those are sort of like slightly different ways of understanding ordinality. If just in an initial sense, if you can get a sense of the difference between the, ordin the ordinal as successor versus the ordinal as, as limit, then that initial intuition is, is the spark that will lead to the strong distinction. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and so he says that the successor then has a local status 
maybe that's like the multiple or it's like we can think of it as a, a generally what we think of like as a set, like a collection or gathering of things, your carton of eggs. And then he says the limit ordinal has a global status since none of the ordinals smaller than it are any closer than any other. And it is the other of all of them. So the big O other for him is this different magnitude, this different option, this or operation for him. It's also infinity. Yeah. And there's a kind of an elegant moment where he defines the infinite sort of, I think he even calls it the border. Um, I'm trying to remember the page now where he basically says like, it's very beautiful. He says, um, and you you mentioned this already, um, omega zero, right? Like there's different ways of thinking about the infinite. And I think the convention is that you're, if you're thinking about the infinite ordinally, you use the notation omega zero. And if you're thinking about it cardinally, you use the notation aleph zero. I could be mixing that up. but um, And what he says is basically that if a number um, belongs to omega zero it's finite and if omega zero belongs to it or is equivalent to omega zero then it's infinite um so it's a very simple but very elegant way of understanding the difference that's about all all i could pull from 14 for now because there's a lot of techie stuff that's going on but it seems like it's set up for something else that's going to happen so maybe we we wrap up with hegel yeah i have I have one I have one footnote and then we'll do Hegel. Yeah. So one final note on 14, which again I'm drawing from this book called Number and Numbers, where he he has this wild argument where he basically says, um, and this will anticipate a little bit um the interview that we're gonna go to in a couple minutes here, talking about um the mathematician Richard Dedekind. And Badiou refers to Dedekind and he kind of inverts the conventional wisdom around the infinite. And he he says, Dedekin is a true modern. He knows that the infinite is simpler than the finite, which I love. So he just totally inverts it, right? We think of like, oh, finite experience, finite life. That's what we, that's what we know. So it must be kind of like lesser or, or more direct or simpler or whatever. And Badiou has this beautiful argument that really the essence of the modern is to um, essentially begin from the infinite. Um, and then the finite becomes a kind of like iteration of the infinite or something like that. Um, he puts it this way. The most striking aspect of Dedekind's definition is that it determines infinity positively and subordinates the finite negatively. Mm. This is its especially modern accent. Well, like, yeah, Cantor, did, Cantor injected infinity between all numbers. And so we're already getting it, let's say, from the bottom or the inside. Yeah. And what I like about Dedekind is that he begins with, let's say, you know, a number line. Let's, let's just say it starts at zero, but or it could go from negative infinity to positive infinity. And that's, that's where he begins. And then you cut on that line uh, to find your number. And then you compare those two different portions. You know, you cut at square root of two and then you can measure them. Right, exactly. You get, you get a finite number. You get you get like a particular number or a, or a an instance of number exactly by by splitting the number line into two partitions exactly so you begin from infinity and then you get the the, the particular magnitude from that yeah that's good yeah cool okay Hegel Hegel okay <laughs> look when I was reading this I knew that he was going to be critiquing Hegel I could see how people could sort of misunderstand this he's 
the, the, I don't know if it's in the translation or in just uh, um, bad use initial wording here, but when I read it slowly and carefully, I'm like, wow, is he going after Hegel, right? So first failure of Hegel, that Hegel takes the law for the law of being. Ooh. I love that. Because, you know, bad you doesn't like the law. And so he's like, look, the law and the way that we've created the law is certainly not. What do you do? But then he has the great part on the good and bad infinity. You know, and there's, a, there's even a handy chart, right? Maybe we can even look at the chart together for a second. It's on 166. And he's like, okay, you know, schematically, the bad infinity is objective process, transcendence, or representation. And then uh, the good infinity is objective virtuality, eminence, the unrepresentable. Bedu doesn't even, you know, like this, but he's willing to sort of at least engage it initially. But then he says, look, even when you get to the good infinity, there's still a qualitative versus quantitative, which I guess is Marxist. This is probably what we know just as much it's so important to, to Marx when talking about the commodity form or other things. Totally. Yeah. Good point. And he says that, you know, Hegel is even backwards here because the quantitative is super interesting. And it's not this totally evacuated character where everything becomes infinitely substitutable and homogeneous and all these sort of like bad critiques of capitalism that we've, we've heard in the last hundred years, you know? So that's great. He, he's not like a homogenizing culture guy. Right, because because Bedu, I mean, I do think Bedu, maybe maybe I did phrase it incorrectly earlier. Right, it's not that Bedu wants to leave arithmetic behind. He does begin from the arithmetical, but I think the key for Bedu is he wants to basically, almost like redeem, simple whole numbers. Right, like th those, and and I think you're right because like um, there's such a strong tradition, particularly in critical theory and in a lot of continental thinking, that like. That like, um, you know, the real is better than the natural, you know, like, like the, the continuousness presence. I mean, there are many kind of like versions of this is better than rationality, discrete rationality, the symbolic, you know. Beyond calculation. Oh, this is a insufficient system that only creates a shadow of exactly. who I really am as an authentic subject and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, whatever, like, like with that notorious moment when Roland Barthes was like language is violence, you know, and and I think I think what bet you would say is like, well, you know, breaking with a simple arithmetical order is necessary and could have this sort of crypto romantic capacity of like the abyss and the the impasse or whatever. But at the same time, bet wants to say like, no, you cannot think that you're better than mere number. Mere number is absolutely crucial. And I love the line on one sixty nine. Um, which is another one of his kind of like sick burns on Hegel, where he says, what Hegel cannot think is the difference, I love this, between the same and the same. <laughs> that is the pure position of two letters, which is so radical, right? Like, because that actually is amazing. Like, if you can think same, same as difference, as dialectical difference, that's actually totally different than thinking same other, right? And, and Badji wants to say two multiples, which is to say an eight and a 12 or something like that. Um, that is all you need. It's not that you need like, um, it's not that you need like um, 
simple consistency and then a miracle or like simple consistency and then like the radical other or something like that. No, Beggie says the opposite. He says, you just start with arithmetic, you follow, you know, what Cantor revealed and you get the two sizes of infinity and it's all strictly provable math. There's no like, have to believe in God. There's no like leap of faith. There's no nothing like that. It all directly, almost technically or even mechanistically flows from it. Um, you know, which is maybe why he says, well, then the human is just put there and you still have to decide or something. You still have to like want to participate. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he doesn't like this Heideggerian or like the, the authentic saying that like numbers are counting or yeah. something, get rid of the authentic, um, which, which for him is tied to a nostalgia that is yes. deeply conservative. Yes, exactly. He, 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 but he'll also be different than like a Deleuze or someone who's like pro math, but Deleuze's math is like this other math of infinity that is tied to. It's, it's the analog, it's the analog math. Let's be honest. It's the analog math. It's the math of, of pure continuity, right? Calculus is the math of pure continuity. It, now it does it through the frame of analysis, yeah. through the frame of making it susceptible to algebraic arithmetical thought. But I think the reason why Deleuze loves all that stuff and, and, and it's strangely the way Deleuze like kind of redeems Leibniz, who would, I think, naturally be his natural enemy, is because the target of calculus, what it's intent on, is the continuous real. For him, it's then difference, differentiation, the difference that makes a difference. It's more like evolutionary pattern of things like constantly going under transformation, but, but often in very small ways. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe we could we could we could kind of get to the end of Hegel and sort of do some do some closing thoughts here. Um, I do love. He, do you want? He, I think you. I think you should probably gloss this uh, properly Hegelian hallucination line, <laughs> which I really love. I feel like you have good things to say about this. Yeah, this last section, like the fifth critique, because every section in this is a critique of Hegel, and they're different ones. We finally get to the fifth critique of Hegel in these just <laughs> short few pages. And it's that Hegel cannot think disjunction, which is like Hegel's not a true revolutionary. He can't think of the break. He can't get us to, you know, something else. Um, already in the top of that final page, we get a, uh, in wishing to maintain the continuity of the dialectic right through the very um, chicanes of the pure multiple and make the entirely proceed from the point of being alone, Hegel cannot rejoin infinity. Ooh, okay. But then we get to this end and he's like, look, even if we were to like pick through Hegel for Badiou to find the things that he likes that Hegel is trying to actually get rid of, like a good quantitative infinity. I mean, that's where, that's where Badiou would land that Hegel doesn't. Then even that is a properly Hegelian hallucination. Like he's rejecting the previous categories that Hegel outlined. He doesn't want to have a good or a bad infinity. He doesn't want a quantitative or a qualitative infinity. Like these are just not useful terms for him that he's willing to sort of fine with. That's a good point. And he says, yeah, that these are ultimately, like he'd been saying throughout, an artifice of Hegel and the Hegelian method. And it's quote, differentiable indifference. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm think I, I think I'm guilty of the Hegelian indiscretion, at least on one level, which is I, because I think you're exactly right. What Bedu doesn't like about the good infinity, bad infinity distinction are the adjectives, the, the moral adjectives, good and bad, right? Bedu wants to say natural infinity, 
good. Real infinity, good. They're both part of a, the same system, really, for Bedu. Um, but yeah, I, I maybe you can forgive my my indiscretion because I actually think the bad infinity, good infinity is is one of the best parts about reading reading the logic. So okay, so to sort of summarize, I think that, and this is really a summarizing point, I think, in the book or a moment where with parts one through three on being, I think we essentially have the full, as we've been calling it, kind of arithmetical or natural story of being qua being, according to Bedu. So what do we have? We have entities, multiples, we have sets, we have the void, we have the ordinal chain, uh, and we now have natural slash arithmetical infinity, which again is just the the smaller size of infinity for Cantor, the the infinity of the counting numbers, the national natural and rational numbers. Um, and so, if Bedu were to stop here, Bedu would remain a kind of naive digital philosopher. He would remain a kind of um, arithmetical thinker. Um, but as we will see with part four. Um, he, 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 he doesn't stop here. Right. And he, and he breaks with this natural, um, foundation. So to explore some of these questions further, we spoke with Sarah Porcio. And so we want to go to that interview now. And Sarah is a, a Germanist who teaches German studies at Duke university. And she knows a lot about 19th century German thought about some of these figures that we've been talking about, um, kind of obliquely, but not in any in depth away, um, Cantor and Dedekind. And Sarah's really good on both the philosophy side and the mathematics side. She's the author of the book, The Writing of Spirit, Soul, System, and the Roots of Language Science. But for this interview that we did with her, we actually focused on two essays of hers, which I really like, and um, Andrew really liked as well, called A Logos. So it's A slash Logos, A Logos, an anomalous episode in the history of number, and another essay called On the Digital Ocean, which was just published a few months ago, and we will link to both of those essays. Welcome, Sarah Porcio. I want to begin with this kind of meditation on the digital ocean, the ocean, the oceanic, and try to um, bring out, bring, bring that out a little bit, maybe direct us back to the 19th century. And in order to do that, I want to read this quote that I ran across from Felix Bernstein on Richard Dedekind and Georg Cantor. Um, both of whom are uh, 19th century German mathematicians who are influential on, on Alan Bedu. So this is the passage. Um, and I think, th I think this will be a, a great way to bring out some of these themes around the oceanic, the abyss. So Felix Bernstein put it like this. Uh, Dedekind said, with respect to the concept of set, that he imagined a set as a closed sack that contains completely determinate things but things which one does not see and of which one knows nothing except that they exist and are determinate. Somewhat later, Cantor gave his own conception of a set. <laughs> he drew his colossal figure upright 
made a magnificent gesture with his raised arm and said, staring into the indeterminate, a set, I imagine, as an abyss. Okay, so what does this say to you? This is one approach, Dedekin, closed, determinate. This other approach, Cantor, indeterminate, an abyss. And maybe this is a way to kind of open up this idea of, of the oceanic. I'm going to start by saying that I have always found this uh, quote, which I've known for some time, uh, totally opaque. <laughs> I, I find it actually incredibly difficult to reconcile with uh, my understanding of how Cantor thinks about sets. Um, I have some thoughts about how one could do that. Uh, the the dedicant situation makes perfect sense to me. This is like, this is exactly how he thinks about it. It's like, it's, he calls it a system. That's actually his word for set is actually system. Mm. And he thinks of it as a system. It's just a system of which one does not know uh, ex un according to which unity principle it operates, right? So like, you know, it's a unity because you have a sack, um, but you don't know what the principle of unity is that, ties together all the stuff in the sack, nor do you particularly care because your whole thing is trying to figure out the rules according to which you can think about stuff without knowing the specific unity principle that determines them. So that's like, that is a very Dedekindian uh, notion of what it means to be a set. Um, it's actually also quite similar to Cantor's. I mean, they were in very strong agreement about um, how to think about what a set is. Um, and I have this quote in the Oceans essay uh, from, from Cantor's uh, Theory of Manifolds, Foundation of the Theory of, of Manifolds. Uh, manifold is just, is uh, menu. It's just, just group, cluster, aggregate, um, which was his, his word for set. Um, and in that passage, which is the one that I sort of play with in the Oceans essay, uh, it sounds very different. Right, that's the one where he connects the set to the Platonic idols, mm. uh, which is really like, by definition, not an abyss. <laughs> right. So, like, here's here's that quote. In general, by a manifold or set, I understand every many, which can be thought of as a one, i.e., every aggregate of definite elements. Sounds like a sack, right? Uh, which can be bound up into a whole by some law. I believe that in this, I am defining something akin to the Platonic eidos or idea, as well as to that which, which Plato called mictone in his dialogue, Philebus or the highest good. Uh, and he contrasts this to the aperon, mm. i.e. the unbounded, undetermined, which I call the inauthentic infinite, the uneigentliche Unendlichkeit, uh, as well as to the paris, i.e. the boundary. So like this, the notion of set is something that sits in between the notion of the total unlimited, uh, the undelimited and undelimitable, uh, and the limit. Uh, the notion of set is the thing that emerges when you have, as it turns out, a system of limits. Uh, so you can see why I find the notion of, the, of a set to be puzzling in this context. So like if the apparent is definitely by definition not a set, um, then how is a set an abyss? Uh, the way that I understand that is as an expression of Cantor's unbelievable ambition, uh, which is to say, um, as I, the point that I make in the Ocean's essay is that I think that he is actually attempting to imagine a set theory that would grab a hold of or form a rule about the collection of uh, the totality of everything which is collectible, which is to say the abyss. 
Um, so a set theory that could do that work, um, maybe from there you get to the notion that a set just is an abyss. Uh, that's, that's a jump that I have trouble with. Um, yeah. It makes sense to me that he was thinking of set theory as a way of, of dealing with the indeterminate, right? Like he's looking off into indeterminate space and he's like, set theory is like, you know, I'm going to grasp this space. That's, I think, what he's trying to do. And so the the infinite and the abyss, they they have a relationship to to. Is there a relationship between those two things? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and traditionally, like pre Cantor, they're virtually the same thing. The notion of something that doesn't have an end, it doesn't have boundaries, it doesn't have limits. Um, you can't put it in a sack, uh, so it's not it's not finite. Right? It's infinite, um, and that is often, like mostly, I would say, figured uh, in this notion of the oceanic that doesn't have, you can't see the horizon, you can't see, it, you can't see its end, it's, uh, it's dense. It's a really fundamental characteristic of a continuum uh, that it's like between every two points, you're going to find another point, right? So there's like this notion of, of flowy material viscousness uh, that that goes into this oceanic idea. Um, so this like the you you can't determine uh, where one thing stops and another thing starts. It's not composed of distinct parts. Uh, that's uh, the continuum and the infinite and the abyss and the oceanic are traditionally sort of one figure of uh, the undelimited, right? Like the, the indeterminate. Yeah, I like I like how you put it. And I think I think to the to the layperson, it might not be clear that continuousness does have that relationship to the infinite. And I like that a lot. And maybe we could bring in one other aspect of this, an important one that you bring out in your essay on on the oceanic is that it's also gendered. Right. And you have this this passage that I like a lot uh, where you refer to the um, the exclusively female denizens from Kittler's Sirens to Bernard Stiegler's Pandora, from Deleuze's Devenir Femme to Bruno Latour's Gaia. <laughs> so, uh, and before we started, yeah, and we could add to that. I mean, before we started recording, um, you made reference to Badiou's interest in the not all, which is also, you know, a way in which Lacan uh, partially defines sort of like the the female side of the formulas of sexuation. So maybe maybe you can just say more about this this roster of female denizens that you think kind of might figure into. Um, and you're you're drawing on some media studies people too, which I like, but also um, these philosophers. Yeah. So this is like I would say this is this is really a work in progress for me. I, the the math stuff's been with me for a real long time. Um, this the. The relationship to, to the work that the feminine is doing in contemporary media studies, con contemporary sort of a radical political thought um, is new-ish for me. And it is, I would say, the interest is born out of just like a, a sense of irritation. <laughs> really? <laughs> kind of like, you've got to be kidding you. We, we're still doing this? Um, but I do think that we're still doing this for a reason. And I, part of my, uh, not, not that it's like, not a justifiable reason, 
Um, not in the sense that like, I think we should be still doing this, but in the sense that it is deeply tied, like the reasons why we are still doing this, making this move, is that the feminine is so deeply imbricated in this uh, structure of continuity, which is also the structure of a certain kind of fecund, uh, fertile infinity, right? Like the kind of infinity that gives to be like, just like straight up Heideggerian about it. Um, and like, you know, I don't, I don't love that it's feminized in Heidegger too, even though he pretends that it's not like, I mean, is it, is it irritating? Yes. Does it have legitimate philosophical reasons? Also? Yes. Um, so my sort of the task that I've kind of set for myself here in this, in this project, which is, uh, in this sense, just started sort of getting off the ground, um, is to figure out what the commonalities are among the kinds of work that this figure of the feminine is doing in these various spaces, what's the common ground? Um, and then how does that help us read the specific work that it's doing in each of these places? And then how do we let it go? <laughs> like, what, are, what do we have to do in order to like think these things that we do wanna be able to think about, freedom, creativity, spontaneity, uh, like, how do we think about these things uh, without this figure? Um, and maybe also by extension without the continuum, like maybe we also kind of have to let go of the continuum. We don't understand it anyway. Um, nobody does. Uh, and so like, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's, what's the purchase and holding on to it. It's, it, and I, I'm not like committed to the idea that there is no reason to hold on to it, but I'm, that's what I want to explore. Yeah, so this makes me think that it would be a wonderful time to explore how you set up your argument, specifically in the, the A Logos article, about why set theory comes around, what it's sort of responding to. You set it up in relationship to a critique and a move beyond Kantian intuition. You also note it's related to Leibniz a bit and issues with calculus and the infinitesimal. And you then draw on not only Cantor, but then Dedekind and his opponents. And I think this sort of gives us a sense of what's at stake for set theory that we perhaps don't get when people are simply concerned with the mathematical questions of what's a number, how do we count, and these things that are taken for granted. I, I mean, the, the real discovery for me, like the, I've, I've always done mathematics, like I, but for me, my two interests, like my history of philosophy interests and my philosophy of mathematics interests, uh, were quite separate for a long time. Uh, and when I opted for this field, I let the other one go. So uh, the point at which they came back together was when I realized that in the 19th century, the history of, of attempts to define what it means to be a number uh, were became associated with, or in fact, were always from the get-go associated with the question of what it means to uh, think at all like with what it means to be logos, uh, to be logical, uh, and by extension, to be a system. Because in my first book, I'm, the whole question is like, what does it mean to be a system? And what's the historicity of that, of that trajectory? So that's, that's how I got there. And that is, I think that's the general point at which the history of attempts to define what it means to be a number in the 19th century interface with the history of German philosophy, uh, and also the backdrop of political philosophy, because the question of what it means to be a system in Badiou is the question of what it means to be a state. 
and how do you change the system, right? Like you got to go outside the system to change the system. So the question, the, the question of the unity principle of the system uh, and how that can be transformed is a political question. And in fact, it already was that in the 19th century. Uh, but my interest in the history of number, uh, as it's laid out in the article, is really about how that dovetails with history, with the history of the concept of concept formation, period. So like if you think about the, the different kinds of number that we have on our table, uh, we have things that are called the natural numbers, things that are called the rational numbers, things that are called the irrational numbers, things that are called the real numbers. And all those names uh, are like, you know, they're very overdetermined and loaded. Uh, and a mathematician will tell you that you don't have to think about them in those terms and imaginary numbers are not imaginary and real numbers are no more or less real and blah, 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 blah. But like the fact remains that actually they have those names uh, for very deep philosophical reasons. Uh, and you can't actually entirely, I mean, Leibniz called his particular brand of the irrationals, which for him were the ones that could not be captured by algebraic formulations. He called them straight up transcendental. And he meant that in every possible way, right? Like this was not, a, this is not just a terminological question. Um, so the question of this distinction between what is like a legitimate number, what is a natural number or a rational number or a non-transcendental number, like a, you know, a straight up number, and what are these other numbers? Uh, and what is the relationship? Where do we draw that boundary, uh, which emerges again in Turing with the boundary between the computable and uncomputable? Like, where do we draw that boundary? And what does it mean for cognition? Because typically, where we draw the boundary has been the boundary of cognition. Like, the boundary between the rational and the irrational is there because the rational numbers are the things that have a common measure. And, and isn't it also tied up with? Um, how can I put it almost like a, a, a way of thinking that is more comfortable for a certain kind of mathematician or for a certain kind of philosopher? Because I, I do think maybe this is overstating it, but I do think that, you know, the whole numbers, we could talk about the sort of like crisis, you know, that the discovery of the irrational number introduced in the Pythagorean system. And it just seems that like, these these continuous values, these magnitudes, the real, the continuous, the infinite, they seem to kind of pose a, or I should pose this as a question, you know, do you, do you, would you agree that, that these sort of pose a threat to a certain kind of thinking, which is a way of thinking that's rooted in sort of, um, you use the word system, which I like a lot, um, a sort of, a, a sort of some kind of unity or monad or whole that is then brought into relation, either a simple two-part primitive relation like the ratio. Um, you also bring out, I think, really nicely something that I never really um, kind of, you know, metabolized fully, but even Richard Dedekind's definition of, um, you know, the real number is about bringing two elements together, these two partitions of the number line, and you connect that nicely. It's about generalizing the notion of ratio. Exactly. I love that. It's a generalization of what logical operation means. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that a lot. And, and so, yeah. So the question is, what do you think about this notion of, of kind of comfortable ways of thinking and then sort of mystifying or, or uncomfortable ways of thinking? And, and maybe that connects back to our, what we said earlier about the oceanic, the abyss. Uh, 
Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to out myself here by <laughs> saying that um, I don't, I don't actually think that I, I actually think that there's really only one way of thinking. <laughs> like the thing that you just described as like thinking comfortable thinking. I like think that there, I don't really know what thinking would mean if it didn't look like that. So, I mean, which is not to say that you can't have a relationship to obviously everything that I explore is all questions about like how that form of thinking has a relationship to its outside. Um, but I don't understand what logos is supposed to mean if it's not a, a sort of in some way definable or characterizable relationship among relations, which is to say that it has to have the structure of an analogos, of a proportion of some kind. Relations have to have a relationship to other relations. If not, you have no measure. Uh, and if you have no measure, as far as I'm concerned, you have no thought. Like I just don't, I, I don't understand. I don't understand how that would work. So I, I, like I've, I'm open to being dissuaded from that position, but like, I think I really am like, I, I, I do appreciate the fear is I guess what I'm saying. Like, and that's that by extension, I, that's what I love so much about Dedekind and Cantor is like, uh, they, they overcome this problem in such unbelievably creative ways. Um, so it isn't about like sort of diving into the abyss and exploring the, the indeterminate. It's about rendering determinant in an unbelievably creative set of ways, uh, something that had never been thinkable as determinant before, never been thinkable as a system before, never been thinkable as a set of proportions before, or as logically accessible. And they do that by reimagining what it means to be an operation, to be the operation of deciding on a unity. Um, so, you know, by expanding or generalizing the mathematical notion of operating over a domain. Um, and it's just wildly beautiful. So like the, the thing about, about these sort of safer versions um, is, is that they're super, they're super sympathetic. It's like, you totally get it. They have in the mid, in the in the 19th century, they're just like things are breaking right and left and getting like super confusing and problematic. And you can totally see the gesture that's just like, this is the safest space that we have. Let's shore it up, you know, and like like not fall off the deep end. Uh, and I compare that in my in both of the essays, I think, to to a kind of Kantian gesture. And that's, you know, that comes from the mathematicians themselves. They make that that move. Um of like, let's draw the boundary between what we're allowed to think and what we're not allowed to think. And not coincidentally for Kant, the things that fall on the other side of that boundary are the antinomies of the continuum. Like the, the domain of real number uh, and the continuum and that form of infinity is what falls on the opposites, falls on the noumenal side for Kant. It's like, you're not, that's, you, you needed to think about grounding, but you're not allowed to sort of, Put it in the determinate box. It doesn't go in the sack. Um, and I just, I, I think that the Dedekind and Cantor in their two different ways are doing this like post-Kantian idealist move uh, of expanding. They take that limit as their starting point, right? As like the engine of their thought, just like Hegel. Um, and they're like, it, it, it just has so much power. It's totally phenomenal. I mean, Dedekind's version I see as being more of a like Hegelian epistemological move. And Cantor's is, is more of a return actually to a kind of Leibnizian ontological idealism. I mean, he's just like straight up metaphysical about it. 
Um, and that's a big difference between now. But this gesture of, of overcoming the limit by making the limit itself the starting point is this kind of idealist move. And I, I just think it's, it's mind-blowingly beautiful. I mean, it's amazing in Hegel, but the, the way you can see it play out in the math itself is just, it's so lovely. Maybe I can follow up with that and just rehearse a few things that you do in your Logos article, because you pit for most of it, these two thinkers, Dedekind and Kronecker against each other. And in Kronecker, you say that he's working through a stock of signs that goes back to the original mark that a human might make to, to count. And then what math or numbers are meant to do is refer back to those and the real world. You call them a thing of things. Everything is very clearly countable. And then with Dedekind, you say that there's a definition of the infinite, and then you can have infinite collections, which allow you then to have natural numbers work as an image or a map of all that then also makes it um, arithmetizable. And so the, the end is a system where you have an era, it's, it's hard to say this word, arithmetization of the all. And maybe you want to explore that a little bit more with us here too. How does this connect to the German idealist system? What do you see as so Hegelian in it. And, you know, for people who aren't reading both of these fields as deeply as you, like, what are some of the connections you'd like us to draw between them? I mean, well, the first thing to say about this is that it doesn't work, right? So like, uh, I mean, Dedekind's uh, dream is shattered. Uh, Cantor's dream is shattered too, but he doesn't really care. Cantor is just like, um, okay, so there are paradoxes. I like, I believe in God. That's where the paradoxes go, <laughs> right? Like he's still, he's still really convinced that you can think the continuum in a non-paradoxical way. And that's what he thinks that he needs in order to found the freedom of human thought. Um, so Cantor's a little bit less distressed about this whole thing, but Dedekind's system is epistemological. If, if you can't found everything in logos, then he's done. He's out. He's like, I don't, I don't know what we're even doing here. So, and, and that is, that does turn out to be the problem that you cannot get the infinity of the size of the continuum. I mean, part of, part of the issue here is that there are two different infinities at work, which is totally radically new idea uh, in the end of the 19th century. But like the continuum of the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you can get, that's fine. It turns out to be much more complicated than Dedekind thought, but his axiomatization that he, you know, the structure of, of, the natural numbers um, that he outlines is still ours um, and is, is unproblematic mostly uh, in, you know, in most ways, according to most metrics. Uh, the, the reals, um, you, can't, you can't get them that way in the way that he wanted to get them. So while his definition of the irrationals stands, that's the, the notion of the cut, what he wanted to do was generalized from the notion of comparing ones to ones to the notion of collecting into addition, the notion of collecting into multiplication, the notion of collecting, 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 and ever greater kinds of generalization. And then his idea was, if you can collect, you can analyze, right? So like, you have to be able to do the backward operation every single time. If you can add, you can subtract. If you can multiply, you can divide. And that's the, like, that's, that gives you the negative number. Because if you can add, you can subtract, that means you have negatives. If you can multiply, you can divide, that means you have fractions. That gets you to the, the sum total of the rationals. And his question is then, okay, how do we get the irrational? Like, well, if you can cut, right? Like, like you can approach your limit, then you can cut. And that's, he's like, I need the sum total of all cuts 
in order to be able to do the approaching to a limit thing. And that's, you can see how it's a kind of Hegelian process of generalization. He comes up against a place where there's not a fit, right? Like he, there's an operation he can do. Uh, and then inside of that operation he can do, there's a non-fit with the domain that he has at his disposal. And his response is super Hegelian. It's just like, I'm just going to make the domain fit the operation. I can do this operation. Ergo, there are things that correspond to this operation, right? And that's, that is what he's doing there. Um, but you, it turns out that you cannot get, you can't get the continuum in that way. You know, I'm not a Hegelian at all, but one thing I love in Hegel is this distinction between good infinity and bad infinity. And it seems like you're sort of bringing that out. And I don't, maybe I don't understand Dedekind well enough, but are you saying essentially that Dedekind begins with this sort of um, simply additive constructive notion of getting to the infinite, AKA a, um, a kind of um, natural infinity to use that word um, versus what I would characterize almost as a kind of like category shift or a sort of um, qualitative leap that would have to take place in order to get from this sort of bad infinity to the to the good infinity and is that maybe the question is does Dedekind accomplish that is that what the Dedekind cut accomplishes for him to be able to get to the good infinity right rather than just counting further that is a really interesting question um I think the answer is no but I cannot offhand answer it um I would have to think harder. So here's here's the thing. I mean, good good infinity is fecund, right? For for Hegel, also it's it's productive. It's not just simply uh, infinite repetition. That's sort of the the crux of the thing. And both Dedekind and Kendra are super interested in the fecundity of the continuum. The fact that it gives you everything that you might possibly need for any form of cognitive operation that you might possibly want to make which is, it's like the domain of freedom, but it isn't just the space of the all. It also has, it has a structure. It has a sort of richness and depth uh, and a spontaneity. And that's like, that's the problem. The problem turns out to be that Dedekind is trying to ground or arithmetize spontaneity. He actually says that the moving from one to the next one that inside of that originary movement of, of counting is a spontaneity. Um, and it, my suspicion about why his, philosophically speaking, why his system fails is that you can't actually mathematize that in the way that he was, I mean, I don't think you can mathematize it at all. Is, is that because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a shift from, as it were, like a thing to an operation? Right. Like a cut is an action that you do a monad. I don't know, either literally or metaphorically is kind of like an object or a unity or some kind of whole. I, I think about that a lot. Like, and, and, and bad use, bad use, maybe we could talk about this as well. You know, being an event the, those two notions, those two things are not just different. They're like categorically different. Right. And so maybe Maybe you could say more about this idea of a cut. Like, what does it mean to, on the one hand, form a monad or a whole versus a cut, which really has a much more active, if not also, I don't know, somewhat kind of violent connotation, right? Well, it's also, it's also writing, right? I mean, it's like it's an incision, an inscription. 
Um, and he's, he's quite clear about that. So the, the rational numbers he compares to a, a, a body, right? He's in German, the orga- it's an organic whole. It's a, it's a, a body. Uh, and he needs to move on from this organic body, which since at least Plato has been sort of the paradigm of logical thought too. It's like a logically coherent system, right? Um, and so conceptual thought is supposed to also have this organic structure, the structure of an organic whole. He's trying to extend that notion to cover the domain of the irrational, which is the domain that has traditionally been associated with femininity and materiality and non-cognitive and all these like dangerous versions of, of the infinity and the abyss and so on and so forth. So he's going to try to like expand logical operation to get there. And when he does that, it looks like writing, which, and one of the things that really fascinates me is that kind of uh, the, the difference and yet similarity between Kronecker's notion of, of stroke writing, where like his strokes are actual things and Dedekind's cuts where the cut is a relation. It's a relation. It's a difference, right? It's writing is difference. It's it's Derrida, but you know, decades before. Yes, like it's it's very it's very careful <laughs> in a way that in a way that Derrida is not. I mean, I love Derrida, but like this this stuff really, really, really hangs together, and that is part of his problem because it's so it's so perfectly done that you can see the problem. Like he himself then sees the problem and sees that it is not in fact going to work. But this, the, the relationship between thing and relation is absolutely what's at stake here. But I think for Dedekind in his kind of Hegelianness, the, the ground is the difference. The ground is the negativity of the cut ultimately. So like he's trying to get away from a notion of thing towards a notion of the grounding relation. Like the whole would, would be grounded somehow in, in relation and relation, relationality. Um, so, I mean, you really have in the move from, from Kronecker to Dedekind, you also have this kind of like being versus event thing going on, you know, like Dedekind is really very much a a relational positional thinker. The essence of the system is the tendency that the generalizing tendency that drives you, uh, in a, in a direction. It's the event of, of operation, right? Like the, the, the act the operative act rather than the thing. So Kronecker is like a very static thinker and Dedekind is an incredibly dynamic thinker. Um, and so I would, I would say that the cut is in some sense, it isn't just like the generalization, it is the essence of the way that he's trying to think. Um, the, the problem comes because he cannot hook the cut to counting in the way that he wants to. Um, he he wants to make the cuts. He wants to bury them somehow inside the idea of counting, uh, and that doesn't quite work because it requires him to start with the notion of of an all, uh, which is not self consistent. But it doesn't make it any less beautiful. So so the third act of this comes in your digital ocean essay, in which this question of counting and the countable suddenly encounters our 20th century question of computers and the computer bowl. And uh, you not only discuss Turing, but then you bring Girdle in communication with it in a really interesting reading across both their works. So I want to just give you an opportunity to sort of um, help us walk through that argument again and find some of the interesting 
textual details and cash out the argument a bit um, because you're, you're drawing in less red texts or connections that, that haven't been discussed nearly as much. The gist of the Turing-Girdle comparison that I make um, is that both of them are concerned with this question of the boundary of operability, the, the boundary of uh, like, where's the end of what mathematics can do? Yes. By virtue of its operations, uh, which was the 19th century question, remains the set theoretical question. Um, and Gödel has drawn this boundary anew. Um, the set theoretical paradoxes force us to, to sort of reassess the boundary of operability. Uh, and then comes the axiomatization of set theory, which is trying to put it on firm, firm ground. And Gödel kind of undermines, again, this, this new attempt to kind of grasp the whole uh, by saying, no, there's this, there's this really fixed boundary, actually. Um, and mm. Turing's work uh, is, I understand it in parallel to Dedekind and Kander's work in the sense that what he is getting at, what he is trying to do, is formalize what it means to operate mathematically. Mm. So uh, Dedekind and Cantor had thought about that in terms of mathematical concept formation. What does it mean to operate over a domain? Um, but not like in any specific sense, in the, in the meta sense. What, what is the operation of operation? That's a way of thinking about set theory. What's the concept of concept formation? What is the concept of collecting? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So, and you know, they're like they're they're assessing concept formation, mathematical concept formation from the perspective of sets. Um, by the time Turing comes around, it has become clear that we need um, we need an actual definition of mathematical operation. Cantor and Dedekind were like, I don't care what kind of operation you want to do. What we're talking about is going to hold no matter what operation you might possibly want to do. Um, by the time, one way of thinking about what Gödel shows is that um, actually we need a definition of what we might want to do. Like, it's not enough to just say that, like, it's all on the table because it is no longer all on the table. Um, Turing has a definition of what it means to operate mathematically. Uh, and that automatically draws a boundary around the notion of what mathematically can be thought. And it puts the continuum on the far side of that uh, because, you know, like the computable numbers are the same size. The set of computable numbers is the same size as the set of the countable numbers, the set of the natural. It is not the same size as the set of all reals, just to say most numbers are not computable. Um, and I think that's that is a thing that like that the move to say most numbers are not computable, but that's the limit of mathematical thought. That I see as effectively Turing's move, or at least one way of reading what Turing is doing and one possible consequence of, of what he showed. And Gödel does not want to go there. That's that's the purchase of that comparison. So Gödel wants to say. What Turing showed was the limits of mechanical formalist mathematical thought, uh, the limits of algorithmic thought. But the limits of algorithmic thought are not the limits of human thought, says Gödel. 
uh, because human thought is free and potentially infinite. Uh, he really goes back to the infinity of time. He's like, we're, we are in time and time is a continuum. We have access to temporal thought. Therefore, we have access to spontaneity. Um, and so this, this whole question of like freedom of thought and spontaneity and surprise and creativity, Girdle wants to hold on to all of that on the far side of the computable, uncomputable boundary. And I'm not sure that Turing does. I'm not sure that he's, and I'm not sure that he cares. I'm not sure that he's committed to that. You know, he has this like fantastic lie where he's like, well, people, people are like, but then nothing can ever surprise us. And he's like, machines surprise me all the time. <laughs> what, what more could you possibly need, right? Like the computable is really big. It's a, it's a really big domain in which to operate. And for him, I think it's big enough and so that's like the, the, the purchase of the end of the oceans essay was kind of to be like, well, what would it mean if he's right? Like, what would it mean if we tried to think spontaneity and creativity within the domain of the computable without needing to jump outside of the continuum? And by extension, without needing to jump outside to like some notion of life-giving fecund femininity. Um, but rather we just like thought thought inside of the space of what can be computed. Like, Maybe it works. I don't like, have we tried? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that a lot. The I, I, I always think that that sort of the touring moment is a turn toward a, a kind of pra making practical of mathematical possibility or even just a, a, a pragmatism. Right. And, you know, I encounter this sometimes talking with computer scientists who will often just if you ask them about things like the infinite or the continuum, they'll just, you know, look at you and say like, I don't know what you mean, you know? And it seems like there are these categories that have just been sort of like um, cast off in, in the wake of, of the digital, you know, the, the turn to digital computation. I don't know. I have some sort of like um, kind of like romantic pathos about that, <laughs> that, that having happened. Um, and I'm not sure I want to give it all over to a, a kind of, practical turn in in rationality but um i don't know that really that really struck struck me in what you just said yeah so like i think part of the purchase of my trying to think with turing is is or will be attempting to to like thread that needle right like i i too like i in case it's not totally obvious i really love german idealism i really really love like the thinking of spontaneity and freedom and like i also don't necessarily want to give all of that baggage up, you know, but like, um, I also just sort of have come ever more clearly to recognize that it really comes with a lot of, well, baggage that we don't necessarily want to be still holding on to. Um, and so part of the purchase is to kind of figure out like what elements of that continuum thinking um, can we, can we keep? <laughs> uh, if we let go of some of the, can, can we thread that needle? Do we have to think just in terms of like this kind of pragmatism and like, like it's just a matter of binary code and like maybe the machine will surprise us and maybe it won't. Um, uh, can we get more, so to speak, uh, without going all the way there and like taking trips with Hitler to go find the birthplace of the sirens? Thanks for listening. 
and a special thank you to Dana Papakristou who provided the music for the podcast. Please join us next time for episode four on The Event.